Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. Now, when I say we, I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. How are you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. How are you today? Ah, doing well. So this time around, we are looking at Tom Jones from 1963. So this was directed by Tony Richardson. The screenplay was adapted by John Osborne from Henry Fielding's novel. The original release date was June 27th, 1963. And the most prominent stars, I would say, well, there's Albert Finney in the title role. We also have Susanna York as Sophie Weston, George Devine as Squire Allworthy, a few other of the notable names in here. We have Wilfred Lawson, Jack Moffat, the feature film debuts of David Warner and Lynn Redgrave. We've got Hugh Griffith, who we've seen before. So it's an impressive cast. Yes, it is. The only other person I would add to that just because genre fans would know him, is uh, Julian Glover. Right, yes, who's appeared in, I think, three different Doctor Who stories, including City of Death, the incomplete one written by Douglas Adams. But to a lot of people, he's best known for his work in Indiana Jones and the Lost Crusade. Yep. All right, so the plot synopsis comes to us from the kind people who provided at Wikipedia. And I will give the listeners a heads up. The synopsis this time has a Wikipedia warning saying it may be too long or excessively detailed. So, I will run through it, speaking probably a little more quickly than usual. The film begins with a silent film sequence, with subtitles, during which Squire Allworthy returns to his estate after a lengthy stay in London and discovers a baby in his bed. I need to interject here, because they're not subtitles, they're intertitles. Thinking that one of his maids, Jenny Jones, and his barber, Mr. Partridge, conceive the illegitimate baby out of lust, the squire banishes them. He names the infant Tom Jones and chooses to raise him as if he were his own son. Tom grows up loving him like a father. Tom becomes a lively young man whose good looks and kind heart make him very popular with girls and women. He truly only loves the gentle Sophie Western, daughter of a neighbor, who returns his passion. Tom is stigmatized as a bastard and cannot wed a young lady of her class. Sophie, too, must hide her feelings while her aunt and her father, Squire Weston, try to coerce her to marry someone they think more suitable, the nephew of Squire Allworthy. The young man is Mr. Blyfill, the son of Squire Allworthy's widowed sister Bridget. Although of legitimate birth and appropriate class, he is an ill-natured prig with plenty of hypocritical virtue. When Bridget dies unexpectedly, Blyfill intercepts a letter which his mother intended for his uncle's eyes only. The letter's contents are not revealed until late in the film. But after his mother's funeral, Blyfell and his two tutors, Mr. Thwackham and Mr. Square, who also tutor Tom, join forces to convince the squire that Tom is a villain. Allworthy gives Tom a substantial cash legacy, 500 pounds, worth over $125,000 in 2021, and I assume that footnote is referring to U.S. dollars, and sorrowfully sends him out into the world to seek his fortune. In his odyssey on the roads, Tom is knocked unconscious while defending the good name of his beloved Sophie and robbed of his legacy. He also flees from a jealous Irishman who falsely accuses him of having an affair with his wife, Sophie's cousin, engages in deadly sword fights, rescues a Mrs. Waters from a British Army officer, and later beds her. Before that occurs, Tom and Mrs. Waters have a celebrated scene in which they wordlessly and voraciously consume a hearty meal while gazing lustfully at each other. Later, Tom meets Partridge, his alleged biological father, and engages him as a servant. Meanwhile, Sophie runs away from home soon after Tom is banished in order to escape the attentions of the loathful Blyfell. After narrowly missing each other at Upton Inn, Tom and Sophie arrive separately in London. There, Tom attracts the attention of Lady Belliston, 
a noblewoman of over forty years of age who is attracted to the pretty boy. She is rich, beautiful, and completely amoral. She invites Tom to a mass ball at the Wallhill Gardens and seduces him. Tom goes to her bed willingly and is generously rewarded for his services with a fine suit of clothes. Lady Belliston tries to force Sophia into marriage to a lord by having her raped by him so that she can have Jones to herself. Sophia is saved when her father bursts in. Hoping to disentangle himself from the affair with Lady Belliston, Tom writes to her proposing marriage, knowing she will reject the proposal and him. She does, but she also shows the proposal letter to Sophia, who writes to Tom breaking off all contact with him. Tom visits Sophia's cousin, Mrs. Fitzpatrick, to ask her to speak on his behalf to Sophia. Mr. Fitzpatrick sees him leaving and, assuming his earlier suspicions of an affair between Tom and Mrs. Fitzpatrick were correct, engages him in a duel. The sword fight ends in the wounding of Mr. Fitzpatrick, and the crowd thinks Tom was robbing him. Tom ends up at Tyburn Gaul, sentenced to hang for robbery and murder. Partridge runs into Mrs. Waters and recognizes her as the former Jenny Jones, Tom's alleged mother. He tells her that the man she met is her alleged son, and that he is awaiting execution. Squire Allworthy is troubled to hear that Tom has apparently been involved in incest. However, Mrs. Waters visits Mr. Allworthy and tells him the truth. Tom is not Jenny Jones' child, but his sister Bridget's illegitimate son, and thus Allworthy's nephew. Allworthy also learns of the mysterious letter that was supposed to reveal this. Since Blythel knew of the letter, concealed it, and tried to destroy his half-brother, Allworthy disinherits him. Allworthy also learns that Mr. Fitzpatrick has recovered and withdrawn the charge against Tom. Allworthy uses this knowledge to get Tom a pardon, but it arrives too late. Tom has been conveyed to the gallows, the nooses around his neck. Squire Western, who has been apprised of Tom's new status as Allworthy's only heir, cuts him down as he begins to hang and takes him to Sophie. Tom has permission to court Sophie, and all ends well with Tom embracing Sophie and both Squire Westerns in his uncle's blessing. Squire Western predicts a child will be born tomorrow in nine months. Tom lives to love another day. So that hits the key points. It leaves out some things, like a few entire characters, like Molly is another one that Tom has a very physical and non-emotional relationship with. It, it excludes her, and it excludes Sophie's aunt, the sister of Squire Western. And she's an important instigator in the plot and she's she's important when it comes to the themes of the film this is very much very much a class comedy if you will and she represents a particular strata if you will of that class of that class structure yeah she does and you're right a lot of this is about the, the classism in the society we should mention that, similar to Jane Austen's works, when we're watching this today, it feels like historical fiction, because it's set in the mid-18th century. When it was published, it was contemporary fiction. So the classism is just another case of the people speaking out and saying, yeah, this is not so good. It's a little more unusual here. They, one of the reasons Jane Austen became so popular is because she was one of the first authors to actually write for the commoners, rather than just the nobles. And it's also about the hypocrisy with those classes, and again, that's that's somewhat why why Molly is an important character. While it's still too early for it to be uh, gratuitous, it, it's it's notable in the films that we've covered the, so far that sex pretty consistently sits at the center of the motivations and plots of most of this film. And uh, that's also where a good deal of the, where a good deal of the hypocrisy lies, right? So there's a scene where all of the, all of the women essentially attempt to lynch Molly for dare showing up to church when she had started to show her pregnancy. And when Tom defends her, everybody jumps to the assumption that Tom's the illegitimate, or that Tom's the father of Molly's baby, it later comes out that I think it's, I, I get Thwackham and Square mixed up because they're kind of a double act, but I think it's Square who is also having sex with Molly. Yes, Square was the one who was hiding behind the curtain when 
Tom did came to confront her, and the narrator confirms that Square was the father. And nothing happens to Square. And, you know, part of that may be because, you, you know, there are only so many threads that Tony Richardson wanted to handle. But I, I think the choice was intentional. Whereas Molly was ruined, and Tom was ready to be integrated and cast out, uh, Square's just high enough in the social strata that he can uh, he can escape unscathed. Yeah, it's a, there is a lot there, and to your comment, it might be jumping ahead a little bit, but the director here is always surprised that this not only won Best Picture, but it still has some, as many fans as it did, because as far as he's concerned, the film is unfinished. So when you said it was omitted, some of it might be necessity, and some of it might be because... No, he was being pressured to turn in a finished film, and there was more of the book he wanted to bring in. The book is very large. So again, with the Jane Austen comparison, a spreadsheet I used to predict how long it would take to read these for the Bedtime in the Public Domain podcast, the novel for Tom Jones would be about four times longer than Pride and Prejudice. So it's, it is lengthy, it is episodic, it's broken into 17 books within it. So a lot of books at that time were actually published chapter by chapter in various magazines. So yeah, this is, it is a comedy, and a lot of it's the class comedy, but some of it seems like odd choices for comedy. So I'm almost tempted to read the book to see how much of that was coming from the mid-18th century sort of contemporariness and what they were going for. Because as it says in the synopsis, they suggest raping a woman to ensure marriage and play it for laughs, which is not. You realize people are actors, but you have perceptions of particular people based off of what you saw them in first or saw them in most. And seeing Mr. Banks try to initiate a rape made that twice as uncomfortable of a scene to watch. Yes, right. For those who aren't sure, that, that character is played by David Tomlinson, who the next year would be Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins. So he went from rapist to Disney, which is, yeah, like I said, they're, they tried to play it for laughs, but it, that part I did not find funny. Well, and you had other, and I'm, I'm not as ingrained in, British cinema as I'd like to be, particularly British comedies, so I don't know what's the beginning of a trope or the presentation of a trope, but you, you know, you've got the opening, which, as you said in the synopsis, is done in the style of a silent film. There's this really nice but kind of odd courting montage with Sophie and Tom to where... Tony Richardson does humorous juxtapositions. You know, at at one point, you're in the sped up, you know, where the camera's cranked faster, chase style scene, and all you're missing is yakety sacks to make it something from a Benny Hill sketch. So he he does a lot of, I can't call them weird because I enjoyed them, or maybe I enjoyed them because they're weird, but he does a lot of interesting editing juxtapositions and kind of fits different styles within the film. He does. And that opening sequence, like you said, with the the undercranking, there are four or five sequences that I think were bringing back some of the tools from the silent era. And I, I think I want to touch on that later in our discussions. But yeah, there are a lot of those techniques that had been abandoned for decades. He brings back and uses on screen. So we we mentioned the aunt earlier and what I found interesting about her character was it was the class divide seen through the urban versus the rural lens. You know, technically speaking, she's of no higher class than her brother, but because she lives in the city, she believes she has a much more worldly view and is much wiser than her brother. And a lot of 
the plot is motivated by, she completely misreads who Sophia is in love with. So it's not that Bliffle, at least as presented in the film, was actively courting Sophie. The aunt assumes, because it must be him because Tom's a bastard, that Sophie loves Bliffle because he's the only person of suitable social class nearby, as if that's what love runs off of, tells her brother, the Squire Western goes to Squire Allworthy to kind of arrange the match. And then when there's the thought in the air of combining these two large country estates, that's when Bliffle starts to approach Sophie. It's also the aunt who exposes that uh, Sophie loves Tom to Squire Western, who, again, in a marvelous display of a kind of snobbery, turns on Tom, and up to that point was one of Tom's biggest supporters in the film. It's like, he's a good lad, his birth doesn't matter. Oh, my daughter? Yeah, no, that's that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Bliffle, I think, yeah, he hadn't shown any particular interest in her, although they do comment that he says, oh, yeah, he will enjoy the other aspects of matrimony, which is fair, because she's played by Susanna York, right? Yeah, she's a very attractive woman, but, yeah, she was just kind of there. And I'm I'm wondering maybe if there's some text with, with Bliffle, because he had shown no interest in anyone, and it was purely like the business transaction, which is what marriage really used to be, but and I guess still is in some areas. Yeah, so th- this does play a lot in the classes, and it feeds in... I don't know if we wanted to have general thoughts on the film before we get into the nominations. I, I really enjoyed it. Some of my thoughts I might save for when we talk about the nominations. I I think it was very much the right film at the right time in terms of what kind of cemented its popularity and maybe why it did as well as it did at the Oscars. Yeah, I think that might be fair. Yeah, okay, so let's let's go through the Oscar ceremony because I think it sounds like we're we're both holding comments until we're through that. So this ceremony was performed on Monday, April 13th, 1964 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, hosted by Jack Lemmon. The Best Picture nominees, Tom Jones won, beating out America, America, Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, and Lilies of the Field. Best Director also went to Tony Richardson for Tom Jones, beating out Federico Fellini for Eight and a Half, Elia Kazan for America, America, Otto Preminger for The Cardinal, and Martin Ritt for HUD. Best Actor went to Sidney Poitier in Lilies of the Field, which is the first time that a black male won a competitive Oscar, and the second time will be a disturbingly long time from now. The other nominees were Albert Finney as Tom Jones, Richard Harris from This Sporting Life, Rex Harrison from Cleopatra, and Paul Newman from HUD as the title character there. Best Actress went to Patricia Neal for HUD, beating out Leslie Caron for The L-Shaped Room, Shirley MacLaine for Ermin LaDuce, Rachel Roberts for The Sporting Life, and Natalie Wood for Love with the Proper Stranger. Best Supporting Actor went to Melvin Douglas from HUD, beating out Nick Adams from Twilight of Honor, Bobby Darren from Captain Newman, M.D. Yes, that Bobby Darren, splish splash. Also beating out Hugh Griffith from Tom Jones as Squire Western and John Houston from The Cardinal. Best Supporting Actress went to Margaret Rutherford for the VIPs. She beat out uh, Diane Salento as Molly in Tom Jones, Edith Evans as Miss Western in Tom Jones, Joyce Redman as Mrs. Waters or Jenny Jones from Tom Jones, and uh, Lilia Scala from Lilies of the Field. So Tom Jones well represented in that category. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to How the West Was Won, beating out Eight and a Half, America, America, Four Days of Naples, and Love with the Proper Stranger. 
best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Tom Jones, beating out Captain Newman M.D., HUD, Lilies of the Field, and Sundays in Seville. The best foreign language film went to Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. It beat out Knife in the Water, The Red Lanterns, Los Tarantos, and The Twin Sisters of Kyoto. The best documentary feature went to Robert Frost, A Lover's Quarrel with the World, beating out La Mayon de et la Chaine, The Yanks Are Coming, and Terminus, which had its nomination revoked for some reason. I'm not sure why. That's just noted here on Wikipedia. The best documentary short subject went to Chagall, beating out The Five Cities of June, The Spirit of America, 30 Million Letters, and To Live Again. The best live-action short subject went to An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, beating out The Concert, The Homemade Car, Six-Sided Triangle, and That's Me. Best short subject cartoons went to The Critic, beating out Automania 2000, The Game, My Financial Career, and Pianissimo. Best musical score substantially original went to Tom Jones, beating out 55 Days at Peking, Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. The best scoring for adaptation or treatment went to Irma LaDuce, beating out Bye Bye Birdie, A New Kind of Love, Sundays in Sibel, and The Sword and the Stone, which is my personal favorite traditionally animated Disney film. Best song went to Call Me Irresponsible from Papa's Delicate Condition beating out the title song from Charade, which I don't remember having lyrics, but that's another excuse to rewatch that. Title track from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. More from Mondo Kane and So Little Time from 55 Days at Peking. Best sound effects, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, beat out A Gathering of Eagles. Best sound, How the West Was Won, beat out Bye Bye Birdie, Captain Newman MD, Cleopatra, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Best art direction, Black and White. America, America, Beat Out, Eight and a Half, HUD, Love with the Proper Stranger, and Twilight of Honor. Best Art Direction, Color, Cleopatra won, Beating Out, The Cardinal, Come Blow Your Horn, How the West Was Won, and Tom Jones. Best Cinematography, Black and White, HUD, Beat Out, The Balcony, The Caretakers, Lilies of the Field, and Love with the Proper Stranger. Best Cinematography, Color, Cleopatra, Beat Out, The Cardinal, How the West Was Won, Irma LaDuce, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Black and white costume design went to eight and a half, beating out Love of the Proper Stranger, The Stripper, Toys in the Attic, and Wives and Lovers. Wives and Lovers was a nomination for Edith Head, as was Love of the Proper Stranger. Best costume design color went to Cleopatra, beating out The Cardinal, How the West Was Won, The Leopard, and A New Kind of Love, done by Edith Head. So she was nominated three times in this year. Best film editing. Harold F. Kress won for How the West Was Won, beating out Cleopatra, The Cardinal, The Great Escape, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And Best Special Effects went to Cleopatra, beating out The Birds. And the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Sam Spiegel. So, did you have any comments before we dig in? Just a few. The I did a quick check on Terminus. Evidently, the film was first released in 1961, and it wasn't discovered until after the nominations were announced. So it was disqualified because technically it wasn't released during the eligibility period. Okay, that makes sense. And then this is the first year, or kind of in a transition year for Best Special Effects, typically to what was being nominated prior was the combination of visual and audio effects. Uh, This is the first year in which it was based purely on visual effects. And to reflect that, the award category will undergo a name change next year. Okay. Which is also why I think we're going to start seeing nominees more aligned with what we would expect in the category. Because it will no longer be a mixture of auditory and visual effects needed to qualify. Yeah, that could well be. I mean, I haven't seen Cleopatra, which did take home four of these awards and had a lot of nominations, but the awards it took were special effects, costume design, cinematography, and art direction, which are skills I appreciate in films. It makes a huge difference when they're done right. They deserve to have these categories, but those are also not the categories that will make me decide whether or not I'm going to watch a movie. Well, Cleopatra 
was one of the first one of the first films where people were predicting a bomb and in some ways it seemed like the media was kind of hoping for some kind of schadenfreude it was one of the most expensive films ever made at the time and i i think i don't mean to imply that the production bought the awards but i think the quality in those categories came from the money spent on it okay yeah so it's not like they went to the academy and said here you go it was just that film allocated more resource in those categories than other films did. Exactly. Okay, well, that that is one way to make sure it comes out well. So, yeah, so running through some of these, I am a little surprised that The Great Escape just shows up once under the best film editing. If we take a look at how these Best Picture nominees stack up, of these, I'm not sure how many you've seen Tom Jones is actually the only nominee I've seen from this year. So I, I will restrain from commenting on whether or not the Academy made the right choice from within that set of nominees. I've seen Cleopatra relatively recently. It was a big enough film that it was impacting pop culture. So at the same time as this film's coming out, you're having things like the... Iron Man go back from the past and rescue Cleopatra and things like that in Marvel Comics. So, prodded on by Make Ours Marvel, I watched Cleopatra just because it had that reputation of being a bad film. It, it It's not a bad film, it's just people's expectations based off of how much was spent on it versus the final product I think was way out of alignment. And I've seen how the West was won, but I did not rewatch it for the podcast because it didn't rank high enough on my uh, letterbox to list. I probably haven't seen it for at least a decade. Okay, that's fair. Um, I do think part of what carried Tom Jones through was what was going on in the culture at the time. And I think we'll see this more as the decade plays on. In a lot of ways, the British were kind of setting the tone for the pop for pop culture in the 60s, while Goldfinger would kind of set the official template. We're now officially two Bond films in. The Beatles have emerged on the scene, so the British rock invasion's beginning. We're going to start seeing British televisions imported into primetime television with things like Danger Man and The Avengers. And a lot of times people talk about the great eras of Hollywood, and they'll talk about, you know, the 30s and 40s with actors like Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable. And then they'll talk about the new wave in the 50s with, you know, uh, Montgomery Clift and James Dean and Brando and Monroe. This, this is the era of... You know, the Richard Harris's, Richard Burton's entered the scene. You know, Peter O'Toole, we talked about last month with Lawrence of Olivier, Albert Finney. I'm not suggesting that all of the great actors and actresses came from the British film scene at this time. But I think they're starting to emerge as kind of that next generation of big talent. And I think Tom Jones managed to just come in at that right time. Yeah, that's probably fair. I also wonder how much of its popularity, at least with the Academy itself, is because of all the silent film homages. The Academy would be criticized heavily by the end of this decade for losing touch with the general audience because a lot of the members were just very old and they had grown up and fallen in love with film during the silent era. So this might be pushing nostalgia buttons amongst a lot of the voters that the other films just weren't pushing. You know, that is interesting because while I recognize that Tony Richardson used different techniques, I I think you may be on to something there with the particular techniques that he used. It, just because something that we've brought up 
I know we touched on it last month and we brought it brought it up in other situations. We're in a period to where you could tell sometimes the academy is vo- voting based off of scale and scope when it comes to director. So to not see a massive film like Cleopatra get nominated for best director, that may be what's playing into that. And I'm not saying that the director of Cleopatra deserved to be nominated over Tony Richardson. I'm just, I'm surprised that it didn't crack the best director field just based off of the size and scope of that film. That's true, but it might be some of the issues that they had with uh, like Gone with the Wind or Rebecca, where the producer on Cleopatra had a reputation for being very hands-on. So they might be saying these were not director's choices, these were producer's choices. True, true. Right, so it's hard to tell what was going through the minds of people that we never met 70 years ago. Or 60 years ago, I guess it's closer. But when we look at, so ju- and this is just kind of going along a little bit with what I was saying about um how the acting pools pool is changing somewhat. If you look at the best actor, 60% of it are, I hesitate to call Richard or Rex Harrison up and coming, but this was when I think he got his, most of his work and migrated from being a stage actor to being a film actor predominantly. Rex Harrison, Richard Harrison, Albert Finney, are all British, and Richard Harris and Albert Finney are kind of in that same stage in their careers as Michael Caine and Peter O'Toole are right now, so. Yeah, yeah, that is quite possible. Before we get into how things are remembered on Letterboxd and IMDb, let's go through the Golden Globes here. This was the 21st annual Golden Globes. Best film drama went to The Cardinal, and there just because of how many nominees they have. They're starting to list up to 10. I'm going to start skimming. But I will point out that America, America, Cleopatra, and Lens of the Field were also nominated for Best Drama. So the same short list as the Oscars. They did include Great Escape. And everything else here did get one nomination or another. The Best Film, Comedy, or Musical, they've recombined those into a single category with this year. That went to Tom Jones, beating out Irma LaDuce under the Yum Yum Tree, Bye Bye Birdie, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and A Ticklish Affair. Best Actor went to Sidney Poitier for Lilies of the Field. There were no Tom Jones nominations. Best Actress in a Drama. That's why. Best Actor and Actress in a Drama. Tom Jones wasn't eligible. Um, Leslie Karen took it home for The L-Shaped Room. Best Actor, Comedy or Musical went to Alberto Sordi for To Bed or Not to Bed. And there, Albert Finney was nominated. Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy also went to Shirley MacLaine for Irma LaDuce. No Tom Jones nominations here, although Audrey Hepburn was nominated for Charade. Best Supporting Actor went to John Huston for The Cardinal. Hugh Griffith was nominated for Tom Jones. Best Supporting Actress went to Margaret Rutherford for The VIPs. And uh, Joan Greenwood was nominated for Tom Jones. Best Director went to Ilya Kazan for America, America. Tony Richardson had been nominated for his work in Tom Jones. And then it's into the Television Awards where Best Drama Series went to The Richard Boone Show. Best Comedy Series went to The Dick Van Dyke Show. And Best Variety Series went to The Danny Kaye Show. Best TV Star Male went to Mickey Rooney for Mickey. Best Female TV Star went to Inger Stevens for The Farmer's Daughter. And they don't seem to have their general up-and-coming or breakout star awards in this year anymore. Before we move on to Letterboxd, two two other things I wanted to bring up about uh, the ceremony and one of the award winners. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge would be presented with bookends by Rod Serling as an episode of The Twilight Zone. I don't mean presented as if they tried to present it as their own work, but it's the only time that they did not specifically produce an episode for the show, that they took something that someone else had made and used it as part of the anthology. And this is kind of tangentially related to Tom Jones, but because it's happened in recent memory, I felt I'd bring it up. There was an envelope error at the at uh, the 36th, 
Academy Awards. They had Sammy Davis Jr. presenting both of the scoring awards. And when he was supposed to announce the best adapted music score envelope, they gave him the best original music score envelope. So he re- so he reads off the nominees, then reads off the wrong winner, makes light of it, gets the correct envelope. So they present the award for best adaptation. Then he has to present the best original, goes through the nominees. He's like, well, gee, what a suspense. I wonder who won this one, because he had already unintentionally announced it because they gave him the wrong envelope. Not the same yeah. as, not quite the same thing as what happened with Monster and La La Land, but close. <laughs> yeah, not quite the same, but yes, it, it was an envelope error and probably didn't have the same fallout because it's not the best picture award. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, it, it's got the reputation of being the upper echelon, which is why that's the award this entire podcast focuses on. So, anyway, going through the IMDb and Letterboxd results. Of the nominees, America America is the number one on both. For the IMDb listings, when we do our usual rankings from you know at least a thousand votes from top to lowest, America America shows up at number twenty. Then Lilies of the Field comes in at the twenty-sixth best film of the year, and we actually had to go to the second page of results before we could get to Tom Jones. That came out at number 107, I believe it was. Yeah, it's number 107 out of the 144 films that qualify. Going through it in Letterboxd, I can't confidently say what ranking it is because it's below the average for the year. So all the films that don't have enough votes to be averaged are placed in the middle of the list, and they come in above Tom Jones. What I can say is, of the nominees, America America, again, is the highest ranked. It's got a 3.7 out of 5. And if we go through it, it's actually the 58th film of the year. So there's a lot above it. Next is Lilies of the Field, with a 3.6 out of 5. And How the West Was Won, is the next film to show up, and that's at a 3.4 out of 5. That rounds to one decimal place, but I think it's below the overall average of 3.41, because that and the next two nominees are very far down on their browse films list. Cleopatra has an average rating of 3.3 out of 5, and Tom Jones has a 2.8 out of 5. So we've got a lot. I mean, they're on the letterbox filters... There's 1,949 films, because we have more limited features. I can't filter by number of votes yet. So it'll be a long time before we figure out where they are. So at least as far as audience history is concerned, they seem to think that Tom Jones should not have won. It's the only one that I've... Well, I did also see Cleopatra, but I saw it on VHS before DVD existed. I don't remember it well enough to judge which was better and which was worse. Well, I find that interesting just because when you, at at least just looking at the nominees, right? When you talked about how the Academy could be out of touch, I feel like other than maybe Lilies of the Field, Tom Jones probably was closer to what was going on in the zeitgeist. And I know it's a film... I know it's a film based off of an 18th century, an 18th century novel, but it's it's body at a time when sexual representation, for lack of a better word, or just the topic of sex was becoming much more free. You know, I I think the I think the roguish slash hapless hero. I mean, while he's the hero of the book. Tom Jones isn't the most competent of fellows. I mean, he's not incompetent, but, you know, he, you can kind of make a through line between someone like him and a Indiana Jones or a Han Solo. So I do think it would have been the more populist out of what got nominated, again, with the exception of Lilies of the Field. 
It might be. I mean, it was clearly popular. It had a $1 million budget and a 37.6 million box office take. So it it definitely brought in a lot of money. Right? So it, it was popular with audiences, but it I have to admit, when I was watching it, if it wasn't for the, the callbacks to the silent film era, I wouldn't have really understood what set it aside enough to earn that nomination. It's entirely pleasant, but why is this the best picture? Aside from, you know, the, the Academy loves period pieces, possibly because of the difficulty of making them well. If we go back through everything, looking at the IMDb listings, the number one film is World Gone Mad, which is not English language. We've got Akira Kurosawa's High and Low coming in at number two. The Big City, that's about Calcutta, comes in at number three. Just scrolling down the list, I think the highest rated film produced in the United States was The Great Escape, coming in at number six. Scrolling down, we also have The Red Lanterns. There's eight and a half. Charade comes in at number 17. And HUD is number 19. Those are all above any of the nominees. We go with the letterbox ratings, and it's very similar. The Great Escape, uh, and then HUD and Charade are close, and but in reverse order. So letterbox put HUD slightly above Charade. Well, like I said, when I do, when I watch to kind of get a sampling from the year, I do letterbox most popular, and then I exclude films that I don't think would be eligible, which is kind of hit and miss. Because obviously eight and a half was eligible for best director, but uh, the films that popped up that were you know kind of the American film and British films that were at the top of um, the most popular list that I ended up watching for this were Sword in the Stone, Great Escape, Charade, as you've mentioned, and From Russia with Love. Not that I would say that From Russia with Love was an Oscar contender. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of, you know, yeah, Great Escape, in terms of what's going on from a, in terms of a popularity perspective, definitely I think is a better remembered and a more popular film than any of the nominees, just because I have a certain fondness for it. TCM in its earlier days had a little short film that it put together that was like, kind of like our podcast, a synopsis of what was at that point a hundred years in, in film and just had it did snippets of film chronologically. And it had, you know, the scene of Steve McQueen trying to size up the motorcycle jump. That's iconic. None of these other films don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to denigrate Lilies of the Field because I respect and um, understand the historical significance of it, but none of the other films have had a indelible image that's kind of been imprinted on the public consciousness like that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a few images in The Great Escape. I mean, there, there's entire episodes of The Simpsons that are based on it, right? With Maggie trying to to escape from her preschool, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of episodes of The Simpsons. I honestly lost track of them a couple decades ago. But The Simpsons in its prime was one of the best shows on the air. And when they do a parody of a movie right down to, you know, bouncing the rubber ball off the side of the crib with the Great Escape music, they didn't mention the Great Escape, but they just assumed, yeah, the audience is going to understand what we're referencing because everybody knows this music. Everybody knows this sequence. Charade, I think, has been forgotten. I know people who haven't given it a shot because it's in the public domain and they assume anything in the public domain is bad. No, it's good. Yeah. The reason Charade fell into the public domain is because in the very artistically designed opening credits, they just had the year but didn't have a C in the circle before the year because it felt better balanced on screen. And that's enough of a technicality to render the copyright invalid. So that's something that MGM was putting together you don't make a movie with Stanley Donnan directing, starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, and expect to dump it into the public domain. It it's also got Walter Matthau, like George Kennedy, Lee, Lee, 
No, it's not Lee Marvin. It's no, yeah, it is Lee Marvin, yeah. isn't it? As Tex, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. Yeah, just in case anyone has any doubts, because it's in the public domain, it's excellent. Um. Well, it just. Oh, sorry. James Coburn was Tex. James Coburn. Uh, thank you. Sorry. It was just part of the joy of doing a podcast like this is rewatching or watching films like that and discovering or rediscovering actors. My favorite thing in Great Escape is Charles Bronson. If you only know Charles Bronson from like the fifth or sixth Death Wish movie, you don't know Charles Bronson. But Charles Bronson as the tunnel digger with claustrophobia is a revelation in The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there's so many. So The Great Escape has, yeah, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Richard Attenborough, James Garner, Donald Pleasance, also James Coburn. And how did Richard Attenborough not get nominated for that? Yeah, I don't understand. So <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it sounds like we might be in agreement here where, you know, it's possible that Tom Jones was the best of the nominees at the time, but the nomination list has some oversights. If if we go by popularity, we've got The Great Escape, we've got Charade, we've got The Birds, which I don't consider one of Hitchcock's best because those visual effects did not age well, but a lot of people do consider it one of the best, especially the older generation that grew up with more limited effects where those did seem more convincing. Apparently because he used physical birds and was overlaying. So there's only a couple times where they're model birds, and that's when they're breaking through a door. But you could see some of these bird heads that are coming in and out are motionless because it's people jabbing the taxidermied birds in and out of the space. Yeah, that one is one of Hitchcock's best known, even if it's not one of my personal favorites of his. So if I were to make the call now with the movies I've seen, with the caveat that I haven't seen HUD yet, and I do know that it is supposed to be excellent. If I were to pick Best Picture, it would be between Charade and The Great Escape. I haven't seen Great Escape in a little over a decade, so I'd have to rewatch both before I made that call. But if I were just picking the best of the year, I think it would come down to those two. How about yourself? I agree, and I, I think I would have picked Great Escape. I love Charade. But having rewatched both of them lately, I and maybe it's because Great Escape was more fresh for me. It was my first time seeing The Great Escape. I preferred it over Charade, and that that's high praise because of the esteem that I hold Charade in. I knew of Cary Grant. I don't remember from what, but when I first started getting into film and I worked at the Suncoast Motion Picture Company, I bought a cheap box set of public domain Cary Grant films. And what it had in it was His Girl Friday, Charade, and Penny Serenade. And while I can't really recommend Penny Serenade, His Girl Friday and Charade made that probably the best 12 bucks I've ever spent on film. Yeah, that that sounds fair. Because that's, that's the other thing. If anyone listening hasn't seen Charade yet, as we've said, it has fallen to the public domain. Now, if you want more of me raving about it, it's one of the films I discussed on the Is It Jaws podcast with former guest Paul Spataro. So that conversation is out there too. But you can perfectly legally go to YouTube, track down Charade, and watch it just because it's good. So uh, with that said, I think we just who would we recommend Tom Jones to? I think it's a I think it's a fine film for anyone who's into you know British period drama. You you've mentioned Pride and Prejudice a few times. Again, it's much more on the bodier side than what you typically get in uh, Jane Austen. But if you're you know if you're someone who enjoyed films like Pride and Prejudice or Emma or Sense and Sensibility, I think you'd probably enjoy Tom Jones. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's not good enough for me to really understand why it won Best Picture, but I enjoyed watching it and will probably watch it again. 
So if you want to see, you know, a sex comedy, but a 60s sex comedy. So it's not like 80s where, you know, the sex comedies are guaranteed to have at least so many topless women. No, there's, you know, there's no exposed body parts. If you were to just look at the frames of a film, you might expect it to be more like PG. Yeah. So it, it's just that, you know, it might be PG-13 just because there's a lot of discussion about sex and how it's motivating people. We didn't get into some of the other issues. Maybe the reason it was cut short is because Hugh Griffith was having a hard time keeping his drinking under control to the point that there's a scene where he falls off his horse and the narrator talks about, well, maybe you shouldn't have a, a drunkard doing this. That was unscripted. Hugh Griffith was so drunk, he literally fell off the horse and it collapsed on him. And people were running to his aid as soon as they saw what happened. And they cut away from that scene, the frame before the emergency response teams actually come into that frame. So there were issues with him hitting people with his riding crop that the director ended up having wrapped and padded so it wouldn't sting as much. And then he unwrapped it and hit Albert Finney, who stayed in character when he turned around and punched him in the chest and ad-lib lines basically saying, don't do that again. So there's some interesting stuff going on. So if you dig into the trivia, that's there. But even without that, it still works. So yeah, when they had those issues, they worked them into the film. So yeah, I I think I would agree with the director where it's a good film, but not necessarily a best picture good film. So if you want a lighthearted period comedy that is about characters who are largely motivated by sex, this will do it. Yeah. Um, so should we talk about the next month's topic? Next month, we stay in England, but I think time-wise, jump forward probably um, a good bit of a century when we check in on Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. We're back to a musical. Yes, and this is one that uh, beat out Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. So I've definitely seen three of those, and I'm very familiar with those. Yep. And I suspect a lot of the audience have seen, or a lot of our listeners have seen a couple of these. But yeah, join us again next month when we discuss My Fair Lady, and thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I want some more.